Now, if you will, please uh, open your Bibles to Psalm 139. It's also in, in your bulletin. It's one of the most beautiful psalms in Scripture. I think Psalm 121 and 139, I guess some people would, would uh, add Psalm 23 to that list or a couple other psalms. But this is a very, very special psalm, uh, profound truths in, in every verse. Uh, it's a prayer for, uh, of a person who knew God intimately and whom God knew intimately. And we're using an older edition of the New American Standard at this time, which has the word thou in it. I like the word thou. It brings a beauty and dignity to a passage which is one of the most significant in Scripture. There are four sections you'll see if you'll look at the outline that's in, in the bulletin. It's a psalm all about God and His relationship with His, with his people, His loved ones. Out of respect for God's Word, let us all stand up for the reading of God's Word. I'm only going to read through verse 16, but we will tackle all of the, the entire passage uh, in the sermon. Listen to God's holy and precious and infallible word. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before and laid thy hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from thy spirit and where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. For thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Our Heavenly Father, May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We begin then with the first six verses of this beautiful psalm. And as we begin, notice as we go through several of these verses that it goes from the general to the more specific. And, and it's to be applied to ourselves as well. Written by David. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. 
Thou dost know when, my, when I sit down and when I rise up, or more literally, thou dost know my sitting down and my rising up. We sit down a lot. We rise up a lot. The Lord knows when we sit down and we rise up. Thou dost scrutinize, oh, thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize, look carefully at, thou might scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Not only knows the word on the tongue, but what proceeds and is going to produce that word uh, on his tongue. You know, such searching knowledge as, as this is profound. It's deep. But more than that, it's loving. It's caring. It's the Lord God caring for us. It's not just a mental knowledge. Because when, when the Old Testament speaks of God knowing his people, it's really talking about God loving his people. And when Scripture says, Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways, that intimate acquaintance, that scrutinizing, is something that is past tense, completed action, and continues on continually. And then verse 5 continues, Thou hast enclosed me behind and before and laid thy hand on me. Thou hast en enclosed is like confined, like you're, you're in a siege. And, and he, he has confined you both in front of you and behind you with his hand upon you. His protection, his caring protection, his love in that regard. The, the psalmist is living with the understanding that God knows and watches over him incessantly. God knows him more intimately than he knows himself. He could not grasp it. He, he couldn't understand it. But he praises God for it. And we praise God for it too. Our little minds can't begin to grasp the depths of the mind of God, to put it mildly. Nor could the Apostle Paul, who stated in Romans chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Our God is too small. Our God is a big God. Our God is greater than you can imagine and he cares for us and he's able to care for us because he is God. And he's a loving, caring God. And the first thing we see here in the first six verses is his omniscience, his all-knowing. His all-knowing. The next thing we find in verses 7 through 12 uh, is his presence, his, his omniscience. He is present everywhere. We read in verse 7, Where can I go from thy spirit, and where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol behold, 
thou art there. You know, it sounds like a little bit like he is like Jonah, wanting to get away uh, from God. But let me suggest that that's not at all what he's about here. That's not what it's about. Uh, he's not stating it that way because we go to the very next verse, which says, because if I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If you were to go to the highest peak in the uh, mountain country of Ephraim, go to the very highest peak and look east, and you would look down about 20 miles down into the Jordan Valley uh, with ridges on either side, but you'd be able to look through that and see the Jordan uh, Valley about 13 miles across the Jordan Valley, and then you go up the, the uh, ridges of, of Gilead, and you get there before sunrise. Okay? And that's to the east, and the ridges go up a couple thousand feet up to about where you are uh, in Ephraim, and your back is toward the Mediterranean Sea, 30 miles as the crow flies the other way. And you're watching there, and you're waiting until the sun begins to just peek its way up above the ridges of Gilead, and all of a sudden the rays dart across and what he's saying here is, if I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will guide me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee, the night is as bright as the day, darkness and light are alike to thee. Again, we might think that this suggests that he's trying to hide from God, but just the opposite. The word overwhelm means to bruise. Darkness, bruising. You're talking here about hurt. You're talking here about fear. You're talking here about the circumstances, whether they're physical, emotional, mental, personal, that's taking place in the life, in your life, so that there's darkness, supposedly. But darkness and light are alike to God. You know, we're reminded about this in different ways throughout the entire Scripture. Of course, Psalm 23 comes to mind immediately, another way of expressing this same attitude. The Lord is our shepherd, my shepherd I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our souls. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with me. Same, same thing as here. Or you go to the New Testament, the obvious verse that jumps right out at you is, is Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in 
Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Lord knows all about us, His omniscience, His caring, loving omniscience. The Lord is ever-present. There's no place that we can go to scramble, be away from Him because He's there with us, loving us, carrying us, even in our darkest of times. And we ask why. Why is God so intimately concerned about man? And the answer is found in verses 13 through 18. It begins, For thou didst form my inward parts. Thou did weave me in my mother's womb. Thou didst form, meaning create, bring into existence, my inward parts. It's the word actually literally translated kidneys, but kidneys was understood to be the innermost parts. <laughs> so they translated innermost parts instead, instead of kidneys. It sounds sort of funny, you, you form a kidneys. Well, he formed a lot more than that. <laughs> thou didst form my inward parts, thou didst weave, it could be translated knit, thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. Have you ever thought of God doing the weaving <laughs> or the knitting? This is the way it is mentioned here. Job says virtually the same thing in Job chapter 10, verse 11. Did you not clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me, or weave me together with bones and sinew? I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. David's response is that of worship and praise as he thinks about these things. That God had created him, that he was fearfully and wonderfully made, and for him, thankfulness was in order. He says, my soul knows it very well. You know, it's very important to know that a mother knows it very well, too. There are mothers who want to deny it. But deep down within, they know it very well that it is their child there within. This is one of the major reasons why we have a, a hope center. In order to help these women come to the Lord and, and, and help them in, in their situation. Similar to David's need that I've often thought of whenever I read his penitential Psalm 32 where he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me and my vitality was drained away with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to thee. My iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. That's what many mothers do and go through in the, proce in the process, and Hope, Hope Women's Center helps them in this regard. My frame was not hidden from thee, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. The word depths of the earth is a Hebraism for the womb. 
So in secret means the womb. The depths of the earth is Hebrewism for the womb. And at the very beginning, it says, my frame was not hidden from thee. In other words, uh, it was hidden from man, but it wasn't hidden from God. It was not hidden from thee when I was made in the womb and skillfully wrought, bringing up that idea of, of weaving, carefully being taken care of by God. And you'll notice it says, my frame was not hidden from thee. And, and the next verse goes further. It says, thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Before his eyes could see outside the womb, God's eyes were looking at him. Thine eyes, God's watchful, caring eyes, were looking at him. Now the interesting thing here, and forgive me, uh, I'm doing this for Mike, so, because Mike loves his Hebrew, and so do I. But the word here is golem. Golem. One of the words that they use for prenatal, for pre-birth children, is uh, uh, yelled. Yelled. It's interesting that the word yelled uh, is, is trans translated child or boy. Yeledah is girl. But yelled is, is uh, boy or child. The word yelled, the, the verb form yalad, is to bear, to give birth, this type of thing. Uh, yelled is also a word used for pre-born children. Same thing from pre-born through birth through childhood. Yelled. But this particular word, golem, would be a word similar to zygote. We're talking about the very beginning and the embryo situation. God's eyes saw him from that, and then it goes on to say, and in thy book they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So it takes you from the very genesis to the very end. Not to mention the days that were ordained for me when as, when as yet there was not one. One of them. God has a purpose and a plan for each single one. This is what it's talking about. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. Galatians 1.15 says, But when he who set me apart, even from my mother's womb, this is the Apostle Paul, and called me through his grace, when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, God's notice of us consists of much more than occasional bits of attention. I may be unimportant in my own sight, and young people, especially for you, you may think that you're unimportant, you're wondering about this. You are very important. You are of great value. You are of tremendous value before our Lord God. You are never unimportant in God's sight. You know, it's impossible not to accept that this psalm teaches the value of every human life, none accepted, and the value of unborn human life in the sight 
of God. In fact, we learn several things in verses 13 through 16. First, we learn that God is our maker, and we're prodded to consider the origin of human life as God views it, and therefore are led to worship Him. Second, we learn that the womb is holy ground. This passage can only evoke holy caution and respect for what is taking place in the womb. Thus, anything that enters the womb to destroy the life, that life is an unholy intrusion into the divine laboratory to inter interrupt and to destroy God's handiwork. And third, we learn that life in the womb is precious. Conception and prenatal development are more than a clinical or biological happening. It cannot be limited in spirit to a medical matter, much less to be called a blob or a mass of tissue. To use terms to depersonalize and reduce the unborn child to an object or thing in order to destroy the child cannot be justified. Moreover, and this is aside from that, but it also has to do with what we've just been talking about, what cannot be justified is the gradualist philosophy that states that life in the womb is only a potential person. A person being a legal term that protects the right of life. Person. Legal term. If you're a person, you have the right to life. The pro-abortion argument is that life is a continuum, becomes more and more complex, and somewhere along the continuum you become a person, and we have the choices in that regard as to where it is, often left up to the mother, who is, who is to say? Uh, Peter Singer in Princeton, an ethicist, says, leaves it open for the first or second year of life somewhere in that neighborhood for you to become a person. And that's why they can let a, a child, after it's born, lie there and die out of this same philosophy. But clearly the unborn and are human beings of infinite worth, value to God. They are not simply potential persons, but they are persons with potential. And God loves them and gives value to them. How we treat life is so important. How we care for one another is so important. Even in the case of handicapped children, we're reminded of Exodus 4, 11, where the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth, or who has made him deaf and dumb, or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You know, I'll tell you this little story. Holly likes to tell stories. I'll tell one, too. On June the 13th, 1979, in Jackson, Mississippi, a little girl was born to a Christian couple. She was precious, made in God's image, named Karen Jane. She was born Down syndrome, with spina bifida. But mom and dad, knowing God's word and the preciousness of that life, made sure that steps were taken to preserve her pre-birth, in-birth, 
And following birth, they handled the handicap aggressively. About 25 years later, somewhere along that line, I had helped start the uh, 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 Hope a Clinic there in Jackson, Mississippi. I was invited back for their 25th anniversary. For their 25th anniversary. And it had a banquet about as large as yours, which means it was a large banquet. And after I had spoken and, and we were just milling around with all the people I used to know and uh, there was this, this policeman, this man, and his daughter. Beautiful daughter. About 28, 29 years old. That same daughter that was born with spina bifida. But because of the preciousness of life, they accepted it, they would accept it, and they acted aggressively to help that little child in that condition. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Then the psalmist continues, How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Jonathan Edwards writes, This is not a hyperbole of poetry, but solid fact of inspired statement. So see how he goes from thine eyes have seen thine unformed substance and how precious is the sum of them, of, of, of God's thoughts, to the very next verses, the fourth part, the fourth paragraph, God's observations. Oh, that thou would slay the wicked. <laughs> Jumps out at you. He goes on to say, Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. The, the writer feels so keenly about the care of a loving God that he is repulsed by those who refuse to acknowledge God's goodness men of, that he calls men of bloodshed. You know, it's easy to hate. The Bible tells us we're not to hate. In fact, it says very literally in, in chapter 4, around verse 25 of, of Ephesians, if you are angry, stop sinning. Some translations say be angry and stop sinning. That's a bad translation. It's if you are angry, stop sinning. Do not let the sun go down. Uh, on your wrath. And the Bible is not contradicting itself here. This part of the psalm is what is called an imprecatory passage of the psalm. It verbalizes God's just response to the violent taking of human life. It calls upon God to bring a covenant curse upon men of violence. It's apropos when con contemplating the value of life, especially helpless, unborn human life, to deplore bloodshed of others. However, notice how he immediately goes on to, to apply it to himself. He ends with this self-examination, which we also ought to be doing ourselves. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any 
way of pain in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. There are two different ways. There is a way of pain and there is a way of everlasting. And David sees in the men of violence the danger that threatens himself and even any tendency he himself might have of the same. And the only proper response is to be an open book before God, asking him, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any way of pain. And lead me in the way of everlasting. 